Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now this evening is our 20th sermon in our sermon series on the life of Abraham. And our text this evening is Genesis chapter uh, 21, verses 1 through 21, page 15 in your pew Bible. Now we've seen in our study of Abraham several biblical principles that are repeated over and over throughout his life. The first is the unconditional faithfulness of God to bring about what he has promised. His word has never, ever come back empty. The second principle is that God's chief method of bringing the believer, like Abraham and like you and me, into closer Conformity to his image and to his will is by trial. Pretense is planed away, scraped away. We see ourselves for who we are in the mirror of his commandments and his word, which then causes us to confess our sin and turn ever more toward him. The result, a renewed person that reflects the Savior all the more clearly. The abiding truth is that for every believer, the frictions of adversity are used to polish the soul. This process of knocking off our rough edges and polishing our character through repeated trial suffering is as old as Abraham and the fathers that preceded him. Indeed, for all of us, it will continue until the day we close our eyes in death. I recall recently a member of my own family, a committed Christian of many years, at a time of life now where she could no longer speak, but to her daughter she did this reminding her and her daughter that the Lord's work was not yet complete, that this last trial, as she closed her eyes in death, was necessary to bring her into a greater image and reality of the Savior who died for her. And then there was a third principle, one that we probably do not take as seriously as we should, the, the deadly danger of sin, of sin, the lurking, habitual sinfulness. We've seen how Abraham has this weakness. We see how Sarah also demonstrates it for us. He capitulates to Sarah's insistence that he'd take her servant girl, Hagar, as a wife, demonstrated a lack of faith in God's word in both the husband and wife. 
not to mention their abdication of their marriage covenant vow. And most recently we saw, just last Lord's Day, how he fell into another old habitual sin by trying to pass off Sarah as his sister to the Philistine king Abimelech to save himself. Yet we saw how Abraham totally misjudged the truth. We can see here, can't we, how sin distorts the way we see things. Indeed, Abimelech is a God-fearing ruler. He takes the moral high ground in reproving Abraham when God reveals to him in a dream what has occurred. Abraham's failure is the cloud that precedes where we are this evening. The patriarch is under our Heavenly Father's discipline. And it's here then that we see it unfold before us throughout all of this chapter. We'll take that first part this evening in terms of the birth of Isaac and Ishmael. And next Lord's Day, we'll look at the covenant he makes with Abimelech at Beersheba. Remember always that Abraham is a believer. He's the man of faith, as the Apostle Paul writes. And as a man of faith, he is always subject to what? That planing process. As God works through his life to make him more and more godly, more and more usable to God. It's a process of grace. From beginning to end, as believers saved by grace through faith, we are subject to the same gracious planing. So what we read here tonight is for believers, not for humanity at large. So we will see again these three principles interwoven throughout the narrative as Moses presents us to us. We'll see God's faithfulness to his word, his gracious promise being fulfilled, his application of trials to shape the danger of past sin. It's very simple, this chapter. It divides in two parts in this first section. First is Isaac's birth. The second is Ishmael's departure. Let's look at it now. Isaac's birth is verses one through seven. Now, as you heard it this evening, or perhaps if you have your Bible open before you tonight, you will notice how the account begins simply. Indeed, in light of all that we have studied since Genesis chapter 11, those closing verses to where we are today, you would think more would be made of this. After 25 years since the promise was made, here it is, brief terse, and to the point. What is Moses doing here? What is he trying to teach us? Look at what it says. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Now I hope you picked up where I put the emphasis. Do you see there's a threefold repetition here? 
It's, as we've seen within the context and structure of Genesis, the, the rhetoric, if you will, that Moses uses. Repetition is the bold type, the highlight, the underlining. Moses' focus is not on the event, but rather what? His focus is on God's faithful word. We saw how God had clearly told Abraham in his visitation a year earlier that Sarah would bear a son within a year, and he was to name that son Isaac. And Abraham had laughed at this revelation with incredulity. Sarah laughs too as she overhears through the tent flap. This second assertion that she would give birth within a year. But now, Abraham and Sarah knew that God indeed had been faithful in every detail of his word. The birth of Isaac is a precise, empirical validation of God's promise. A 90-year-old mother... Indeed, I would suggest the only 90-year-old nursing mother in human history and her baby boy are the glorious evidence before Abraham's eyes. So here in Genesis, we get a sampling of what has been the experience of God's people throughout salvation history. God is true to his word. Jesus declares the same in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Listen to what he says. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, This solemn declaration is by the one who is himself the yes to all the promises of Scripture. The consequence for the believer is equally simple. It means that you and I can, indeed must, trust every syllable of God's Word. This is the way every Christian is meant to live, you see, in the deepest trust in all of God's Word. Indeed, is that not how our Savior lived? Is not how he responded to the temptation in the wilderness that we are to live by every word that proceeds from God's mouth? If we are to be like him, and indeed are being made like him through trial, surely this should be the result. Now notice how Abraham responds to God's word immediately. It is evident in his naming and in circumcising the child. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now remember how we learned of this naming back in Genesis 17? This God-given name, Isaac, means laughter. And the name recalls the initial incredulity of the parents at the idea, the very idea that a son would be born within a year. As to Abraham, this is what verse 17 of 17 says. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed 
and said to himself, So a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? As you may recall, he fell in worship. And to himself, in his heart, he says this, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? He laughed with the hope and that sense of, How can this even be? God counters how? By saying, not only will she give birth, but here's the name, Isaac, laughter. In other words, God has the last laugh. Next, when Sarah heard that she was to give birth within a year, she too laughed. And this brought a divine challenge. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Notice the same kind of question that Abraham had. The answer, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And what does Sarah do? She denies it. I I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, no, but you did laugh. Their son, Isaac, their son, laughter is due. And now in verses 6 and 7, we see the new mother Sarah give a joyous shout of praise that in the rhythm of the original language is actually metrical. I would suggest this is a song of praise. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne a son in his old age. There is laughter everywhere. Song being sung. Celebration in the camp. Baby Isaac laughing. God, grace rains down on Abraham and his people. The true heir of the Abrahamic covenant is born. And indeed, Isaac is the first person to have been circumcised on the eighth day. So his destiny is unique in that sense. He's separate from that of Ishmael, who was circumcised when? When he's older. God had kept his word, they obeyed, and their hearts sang. And their faith goes even deeper, doesn't it? Isn't that what happens to us as well? From the onset, Abraham believed God. That's why he left Ur. That's why he gave Lot the choice of the land. And then after the kings of the north, that he kidnapped Lot. But now Abraham is ascending to such a level of unwavering trust that God will keep his word that we will see later is the key to what happens on Mount Moriah when he's told to sacrifice his Isaac, to sacrifice his laughter. Now the second part is longer, Ishmael departs. In verse 8 we know that at least three years have passed, and we can suggest this because three years was the traditional time for weaning a child in the Bronze Age. So Isaac is now a three-year-old toddler, and Ishmael is about 16 now. And Moses records this in that way. The child Isaac grew and was weaned. That's our clue. Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, 
whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman and with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Now what in the world is going on here? There's a feast, he's weaned, and notice, Ishmael's not named, but only indirectly. Something is afoot here. Sarah also points out she's not any a handmaid, but she's a slave now. Remember that reduction in status that occurred. That's also being underlined here. There is a new instance of laughter, though, isn't there? But here it is, the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, Ishmael, the firstborn. Uh-oh. But not Abram's heir laughs. Now, what is going on here? Why is this a big deal? Well, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, can help us here. There, the way the translation works, it's this sense of a lack of deference at not acknowledging something. In other words, Ishmael receives Isaac as an equal to himself. The Apostle Paul takes it still further. We heard tonight how he writes that Ishmael persecuted Isaac. But Paul has the entire tribal group in mind here and the way in which they harass Israel across its history. There is no sense that there's physical violence underway as far as persecution is concerned, but rather it's this question of a lack of deference and equality, and then Sarah brings in from the back door inheritance. The inheritance is at risk. The birthright Oh, that comes up again, doesn't it? With another two sons. But not the question here. We see a foreshadowing almost, don't we? The pressure is on the inheritance. In other words, according to the cultural precedent of the day, the accepted son of a handmaiden, i.e. Hagar and Ishmael, have a direct legal claim on the father's property. And Ishmael is indeed that legitimate son. He has a right of inheritance. So Sarah understands the trajectory of events here. Indeed, she has no affection for Hagar or for Ishmael, even though they've been part of her family for years by this point, for 16 years. And she doesn't seem to care what happens to them, just... Put them out. Now the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3 that Sarah was a noble woman. And perhaps her instincts were sound, but her actions at this time are not noble at all, are they? What's going on? Oh, old habits, old jealousies, old sinfulness. Sarah wants this sorted now. And she's absolutely determined. There is absolutely no way that Ishmael will share in Abraham's legacy. 
And that is why Sarah is willing to go to such lengths to get rid of them. We also know that she has a vendetta against Hagar in the way she reduced her status to slave. And that's the other niggle here, you see. Because they were reduced in status, Hagar and Ishmael are not fully free. They don't enjoy the privileges of family and clan that is rightfully theirs and his by his birth and by his father. So Sarah's solution is actually, again, quite simple and quite straightforward legal precedent of the day. Because it turns out that someone like Ishmael in his position, who is indeed legitimate and has access to the inheritance, can give it up in exchange for what? Freedom. Equal status as a free person. You can be free, but you give up the inheritance. Sarah is definitely not acting righteously here, is she? She wants Hagar and Ishmael to be set free. In return, they give up any claim they might have on Abraham's estate. But there's a problem, isn't there? Abraham says no. He is unwilling to go through with the plan. Verse 11, And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son, Ishmael. The verb displease in our ESV is a strong one in the original. It means to do evil. This is to do evil. Abraham sees it. Sarah does not. So he's adamantly, morally opposed to Sarah's plan to give manumission to Hagar and Ishmael so that the inheritance is made safe And whatever their future is, is their own business. So he's distressed. Ishmael is his son. And he's been the focus of his fatherly love for 16 years. And it's at this point that we see God's grace as he comes and intervenes. He says this, don't be displeased because of the boy. And because of your slave woman, whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. But here's the grace, you see. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also. Why? Because he is your offspring. In other words, God will guarantee the inheritance to Ishmael. That there's a great future awaiting both of his sons. One is through which the promise will be realized. The other will become the patriarch of a great nation. Both have prodigious futures ahead of them. God is graciously addressing the self-created mess of Abraham and Sarah. He picks up the tangled threads of their lives, and places them within his providence, making all things work together for good, which is indeed what the Apostle Paul tells us is God's way. This would be later realized again, won't it, in Joseph's life, 
when he addresses his brothers, when he finally reveals himself to them after so many years. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So without affliction and hardship, we would be trivial, superficial, flat-sided beings without depth or substance, without any faith at all. This truth is a life-changing revelation when taken to heart, that God works in and through these vicissitudes of life to mature our faith. It's something for us to take to heart. And as the scene closes here in the encampment, we are now the spotlight goes to Hagar as we see the story conclude. What happens? Well, they're in Beersheba. We know this. Well, the thing about Beersheba as a place is that it's a featureless plain. Her intention is to go to Egypt, isn't it? But she gets lost. She just gets lost. And as they wander around and the supplies run out, There they are. She lays the young man down and goes away because she'd rather not hear the death rattle of her son as she herself dies. But notice something here. Two sons from the same dad, right? What happens on Moriah when Isaac is laid on the altar and Abraham raises the knife? Do you remember? A voice from heaven says what? Do not do this. What happens here? Ishmael is saved by a sudden voice too. That's not a coincidence. He will be a great nation. And God reveals through his hand that, as a matter of fact, there is an oasis right here. Well of war. It's close by. Drink your fill. And I am with the boy. Specific graces have fallen here. The separation left Isaac free to pursue the promise of the land and his call to a special relationship with God. And God's protecting hand rests on Ishmael from then on as he pursued a life separate and distinct from the patriarch, as a gift of God's grace as well. And there are so many parallels here. The occupation of Archer. Who else is the Archer in the Old Testament? The other two brothers? Who is sent out to hunt for game and comes back late? Esau, right? Yes. So it's again a lesson for us to learn that there's a grace upon the soul of the believer preparing us for acts of faith as we become more and more like Christ. And indeed, as we shall see, for Abraham as well, when he offers up Isaac on Mount Moriah. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. 
There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.